This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How do you imagine it is to work as a lighthouse keeper? Probably like an introvert's dream. You're alone on a rock in the middle of the sea with nothing but the raging waves and the lights to keep you company. But being alone can have its downside too. No one will know if something happens to you. And that was exactly the case with the keepers of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. It was a fine and calm day on December 15, 1900. In such weather conditions, lighthouses aren't crucial for the safety of passing ships, but it was still noted as a bit odd by the Arctur, a steamer passing by the Flannan Isles on its way to Philadelphia, that the lighthouse on Aylan Moor was not operational. The ship's captain noted it in his log and left it at that. It was only three days later when the Arctur arrived to the port of Leith that this strangeness was officially reported. A ship was immediately rigged with a relief lighthouse keeper, Joseph Moore, to be delivered to Island Moore. But the weather had been bad since the day before and it couldn't set sail for more than a week. Finally, on December 26th, the relief boat Hesperus arrived at the lighthouse. But even as they approached, they could tell it's not been maintained this whole time. The lighthouse had normally been manned by three people, James Ducat and Thomas Marshall, the regular keepers, and Donald MacArthur, the occasional who has been substituting for another keeper on sick leave. There was a fourth too, a rotating man who was on store at the time. The Hesperus crew, however, was met by no one. Normally, at least one of them would have been waiting for the ship on the dock. That was the first sign of trouble, but by far not the last. Upon arrival, James Harvey, captain of the ship, also noticed that there was no signal flag on the flagstaff to welcome the relief boat, and all the supply crates had been left on the landing while they should have been inside. Harvey blew the ship's whistle. No reaction. A flare was fired in the air. No effect either. The sense of unease grew on the Hesperus, so Moore decided to deploy a boat and go on shore alone to investigate. It was ominously quiet on the island. The lighthouse stood dark and lifeless, only seagulls keeping it company. Moore went on to explore the territory and the building itself, and what he found unsettled him even further. There was no sign of the keepers, not even a trace left. Both the main gate and the entrance door to the lighthouse were closed. The beds were unmade. And most eerily, the clock stopped. That meant the men were absent for more than a week. Pensive and alarmed, Moore returned to the ship and took three volunteers back to shore to further investigate. Inside the lighthouse, they saw other signs of the keepers left in a hurry. There was an overturned chair near the dinner table, 
and two of the three protective oilskin coats were missing. The third was still on the hook, which was very strange. The weather during the past week was terrible, so why would one of the men leave the building without protection? And in any case, the rules dictated that there should always be at least one keeper on the post tending to the lighthouse. For all three of them to leave at once, something terrible must have happened. When the men returned to the Hesperus, Captain Harvey used a telegraph to send a note to the Northern Lighthouse Board. It said that a dreadful accident had happened at the Flannans and that all the keepers had disappeared. His guess was that the poor souls had been swept away by the raging sea or had fallen from a cliff. Harvey's requested an official investigation to be conducted. And on December 29th, Robert Moorhead, a Northern Lighthouse Board superintendent, arrived to do just that. And here's where things truly took a turn for the eerie. Moore had found the lighthouse logbook that the men kept until their disappearance. That is, about dinner time of December 15th. On December 12th, Thomas Marshall wrote that there were severe winds, the likes of which he'd never seen in 20 years. Also, the two other men began acting in a highly unusual way. Ducat, according to the logbook, was very quiet, and MacArthur was crying. Highly unusual in this instance was a huge understatement. All three of the keepers were tough, hardened men, and MacArthur was a veteran mariner. It was simply impossible that he could have been crying because of the storm, no matter how bad it was. The entry from December 13th told that the winds were still howling, and the sea was even more violent than the day before. The log implied that the three men were terrified, which was, again, very strange since they were experienced keepers and knew that they were safe inside the lighthouse. The elements could do nothing against a sturdy stone structure built specifically to withstand rough weather conditions like these. But perhaps the most unsettling of this was the fact that there were actually no storms sighted on the 12th, 13th, or 14th of December in that area. It was written in the log that the skies finally cleared only on the morning of December 15th. And that was the last entry. The keepers went missing on the evening of the same day. There are so many inconsistencies in this whole story that it remains a mystery to this day. Not only did the official investigation not find any clear evidence of what had happened in the Eileen Moore lighthouse, but it also made the situation even more perplexing. As soon as the news reached the mainland, wild theories from all corners of the UK started circulating. Still, there was also at least the official version of events, and that made some sense. You see, the western landing of the lighthouse premises was severely damaged by recent storms. Iron railings were bent, uh, the iron railway beside the path was torn out of concrete, and turf had been ripped away from the top of a cliff that stood 200 feet tall. This evidence showed that the waves and the wind had been particularly savage. And there lay the explanation to the mysterious vanishing of the keepers. On the 15th of December, two of the men must have gone out into the storm to secure the box on the western landing which contained mooring ropes. They had been out for some time when the third one, left inside as the rules required, 
noticed an abnormally large wave coming down on the island fast. Deciding there was no time to waste, he leaped to his feet, overturning the chair he had been sitting on, and rushed off to warn the other two of the imminent danger. He was in a big hurry, so he didn't stop to grab the oilskin coat on the way out. But apparently, he was too late. When he reached his fellow keepers, the wave had already reached the island, and as they were all dangerously close to the edge, it swept them all from the landing. Seems a plausible enough theory, but there are a couple of gaps in it. Firstly, it doesn't explain where the storm even came from. The keepers disappeared in the evening of December 15th, and by all accounts, the weather that day was fine, and the sea was calm. Even the keeper's own logbook confirmed it. So, how would a huge wave appear on that day without any warning? And secondly, again according to the entries in the lighthouse logbook, the damage to the western landing had been done before the men's disappearance. So, they must have witnessed the mayhem, but had not in fact gone out into it. Since 1900, many more theories have been born including one about a freak wave washing away one of the men and the others being swept away by subsequent waves while helping him. Also, some theorized that a big wave might have entered a narrow gully by the western landing and burst back with force, pushing the men who were trying to secure their equipment over the edge. In this theory, the third keeper was also running to help his colleagues but suffered the same fate as them. But. Whatever hypotheses were given, credible or nonsensical, none of them have given us any clue as to what really happened to the three bold men from Aelin Moor. Who knows? Maybe someday the truth will be discovered? What do you think caused the lighthouse keepers to disappear from the island? Let me know down in the comments. If you learned something new today, then give this video a like and share it with a friend. It was the wealthiest and most beautiful city ever to be seen. Stepping through its central gate alone would take your breath away with its elaborate decorations and towering marble statues. Everywhere you'd look, you'd find yet another marvel of civil engineering and cultural prowess. Yes, the lost city of Atlantis was truly the pinnacle of ancient civilization. That is, if it ever existed. Since it was supposedly swallowed by the sea in its entirety, it's no wonder some curious minds linked it to the Bermuda Triangle, another subject of endless mystery in popular culture, suspected of swallowing quite a few missing planes and ships. In the late 1960s, it's said that a group of treasure hunters stumbled upon the remains of an ancient city while diving in the Bermuda Triangle off the coast of Miami. Not only did they claim to encounter some intricate-looking ruins, but they also claimed that they found a glass pyramid there, larger than any other pyramid ever discovered in Egypt. A huge glass pyramid on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean? No, that story turned out to be a hoax. Nevertheless, we do know that strange phenomena are still happening in the Bermuda Triangle, like volatile water currents or even the occasional vortex. When anyone mentions the Bermuda Islands, this mythical triangle is often the first thing that comes to mind due to all the mysterious disappearances or unexplained malfunctions. But there's a lot more to this territory than one mysterious triangle. Let me tell you about it, just in case you might want to visit. 
For a time after its discovery, Bermuda was briefly known as the Somers Isle, named after George Somers, a British privateer and naval hero. But the name that eventually stuck was the initial name, Bermuda, named after Juan de Bermudez, an explorer from Spain who discovered it in 1505. It's the oldest remaining British territory overseas, going back to a time before even the United Kingdom was established. The island's geographical creation is also unique. Scientists have recently discovered that the volcano that had generated this piece of land is like no other on Earth. Since it has pleasant weather almost all year, it's a great place for golfing, sporting eight world-class courses, often frequented by famous golf players or celebrities. You might just run into one by accident, if you're lucky. If you're more of a music fan, you would be interested to know that John Lennon got the inspiration for about 25 of his songs right here on this island, including classics such as Watching the Wheels, Woman, and Just Like Starting Over. Bermuda's official online travel guide even provides a Lennon-inspired itinerary, taking you from the Bermuda Botanical Gardens to the Masterworks Museum of Bermuda Art to Front Street, a district well-known for its very active nightlife. William Shakespeare himself has an interesting connection with this island. His famous play, The Tempest, a story about a shipwrecked crew that end up on a magical island where they are tormented by an old man and his servants, was initially going to be set in the Mediterranean. But after learning about a real-life shipwreck in Bermuda, Shakespeare was supposedly inspired, and so moved the setting here. The island is also home to some fascinating animal wildlife. On hot summer nights, a special insect that glows in the dark, called the Bermuda fireworm, can be found in protected bay areas. There's also a unique species of birds here, the cowhouse, also known as Bermuda petrels. Believed to be extinct for about 300 years, they were rediscovered back in the 1950s, and a sanctuary was built for their protection. Currently, there are about 300 of these birds in Bermuda, total. Some of the first sailors to end up on the island at times reported strange sounds coming from inland and the surrounding waters after sunset. They even described what they heard as children screaming. So, of course, they thought it must have been because of witches or sea monsters. It took a little more time and research to figure out the sounds were coming from the cowhounds. These birds emit a very specific sound that can be easily confused with distressed human noises. Just as the Netherlands are famous for their tulips and Brazil for its coffee, Bermuda is well known for, drumroll please, onions. Yes, Bermuda used to export an amazing amount of onions back in the day, and the general quality of the vegetables produced here is said to be very high. Bermudians, that's how people living in Bermuda are called, are so proud of their onion heritage that when the clock strikes 12 on New Year's, a giant-sized onion decorated with beautiful lights is dropped in St. George's Town Square to usher in a new year. This is a big part of Bermudian tradition as their onion heritage is a point of pride for the Bermudian people. The community of Bermuda is known to be tight-knit and to be very friendly and sociable. It's common to say hi to everyone on the street, even if you aren't properly introduced. Not greeting people when entering a shop or jumping into a bus is actually considered rude, so be sure to get accustomed to locals saying hello when paying a visit. Another fascinating aspect of Bermuda is its architecture. The houses are all painted in bright, zesty colors. Bermudians take very good care of their homes, even repainting them every four to five years. And they can even choose the color of their house without any limits. The roofs, however, are a completely different story. 
when visiting, you will notice that they are all white and terraced. Here's why. Since there is no public water system in Bermuda, people living here have to collect their own water. And that's what the roofs are for. Rainwater is collected on the roofs and then funneled into water tanks for storage and future use. That's why it's so important that the roofs remain white. Not only is it much easier to spot debris on a white surface, but the white cement also helps with sanitizing the water. What about transportation? Well, only residents can drive a car here, and only a single car is permitted per household in terms of ownership. So if your trip itinerary includes renting a car, you may want to rethink it. If riding a bus is not your preference, there's always the option of renting a scooter. You just have to remember to drive on the left side of the road. It is a British colony after all. This wonderful location is also one of the few places on Earth with pink, sandy beaches. Because it's surrounded by coral reefs that are responsible for the special red pigment, Bermuda is home to some of the most spectacularly colored beaches in the world, such as Horseshoe Bay Beach, West Whale Bay, or South Shore Park. For those interested in more of a culinary experience, Bermuda has some interesting local dishes to explore. Its geographical location and the fact that it's surrounded by water mean that most local courses are based on fish and seafood. Here you can get a nice codfish breakfast, a Bermuda fish cake, or their famous Hoppin' John. A dish made with black-eyed peas, sliced sausage, bacon or chicken, Bermuda onion of course, and some brown rice, often seasoned with garlic and thyme. They do this last one for special occasions, like in January, during the Bermuda Restaurant Weeks, a culinary festival that you'd better not miss if you love a good feast. For a place to chill with a fantastic view, Bermuda offers two historic lighthouses, each with its own delightful peculiarities. To get to Gibbs Hill Lighthouse, for example, you would have to make a long pilgrimage up 185 steps. There's no elevator to get you there, so be sure you're properly hydrated before starting the journey. The panoramic view of the ocean, however, will make up for all the effort. There is also St. David's Lighthouse, which is known as an ideal spot for whale watching. Particularly in March and April, humpback whales generally pass through these waters as they travel north to their feeding grounds in Canada. The National Museum of Bermuda also provides an array of unique experiences, such as the Dolphin Quest. Through this program, tourists have the opportunity to view, meet, and interact with dolphins in a sheltered, natural ocean lagoon environment. Searching for the best hidden Instagrammable spots? Then Crystal and Fantasy Caves is the place for you. They were actually discovered by accident in 1907. Two young boys, Carl Gibbons and Edgar Hollis, lost their ball while playing cricket. When one of the boys went down a hole to get the ball back, he discovered this magical place full of crystal formations surrounding a beautiful lake. Crystal and Fantasy Caves attract a huge number of tourists each year, and through a number of recently constructed bridges, they are now more easily accessible. Be sure to wear comfortable shoes, though. There's lots of other geographic, historic, and cultural attractions I could talk about, but I think you get the gist. Bermuda is a lovely and vibrant island paradise that offers so much more than conspiracy theories about missing planes and lost cities. The weather is pleasant, the people are friendly, and there's so much to do on this beautiful island. So what are you waiting for? Book a flight today! <laughs> Just a suggestion, of course. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.